do want to say that I do attempt <laughs> to make the garden somewhat pleasing to my neighbor's eyes as well. I don't want to be a bad neighbor. I don't want it to look like um, rats live on the property because they actually don't. But but rat snakes do. And, and so do uh, chipmunks and moles and all, all kinds of other wonderful creatures. But the flowers are pretty, even if they have the word weed in their name. Right now, ironweed is blooming and it is this gorgeous, deep purple. And so many of the, the, the flowers that are in my garden have the word weed as part of them. And yet they are every bit as beautiful as the flowers that that aren't native to our landscape and can't, because they aren't native, feed our native insects and, and wildlife. But they are still just as beautiful, I think. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Our guest today is one of our most revered and beloved essayists. I had to practice that a few times. Margaret Renkel. Margaret is the author of the just-released collection, The Comfort of Crows, A Backyard Year. Her earlier books are Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, and Graceland, also, at last. Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. She is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where her essays appear weekly. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. Margaret Rinkle writes about the South as few other writers do, and the natural world as hardly any writers ever do. Today, we'll be talking with her about how the natural world and the human world collide, how Margaret tackles such tender subjects with wisdom, and how her patient and curious inspection of her own backyard finds its way into her work. The founding editor of Chapter 16, a daily literary publication of Humanities Tennessee, and a graduate of my alma mater, Auburn University, and also the University of South Carolina, she lives in Nashville. Margaret and I both wrote many of our last books in the Tennessee mountains, and I am thrilled to welcome Margaret to the podcast. Thanks, y'all. Welcome, Margaret. Yay. Okay, well, before we came on, you got a taste of how meaningful this book was to me. But as I was reading early on in the book, it all cemented for me when I read this quote, the world will always be beautiful to those who look for beauty. I was blown away. Can you explain the quote in terms of how and why you approached this book of stunning essays? I guess it was thinking about how many birds there were in my childhood and how many fewer there are today. 
there are literally half as many birds in America as there were the year I was born, 1961. And yet, when I think about birds, I don't immediately think about diminishing numbers. I think about how beautiful they are and how heart-lifting their songs are and how how much pleasure I take from their company at the bird bath or at my feeders. And it, and it occurred to me that this is how it's always been for the human race. We have been the cause of great biodiversity loss pretty much for our, the, at least for the entire history of the industrial age, the, po- the post-industrial age, but also I think probably from the beginning and yet it still seems so beautiful and so sacred to us. It is so beautiful and sacred. The opening of this collection reminds me of my favorite poem by William Stafford. The poem is called, You Reading This Be Ready. I memorized it for my daughter's wedding and recited it. And of course it fell out of my head, but the opening line is, starting here, what do you want to remember? And the whole poem is about paying attention. And your line, wherever you are, stop what you are doing, also brings us to notice, brings us to task to pay attention. I want you to talk to us about this deep paying attention to, for example, in your quote, the deep hollow of the persimmon's bark. I have this secret... I nurse this secret conviction that we we will work to our dying breath to save what we love. And the deep grooves of the persimmon's bark is one of the things I love. And that's what this book is really. It's a love letter to all the things I love. And, and it's a not very well-disguised plea to everybody else to fall in love too. But you can't really love anything that you don't pay attention to, that you aren't studying. And and you think about falling in love with a human being, you th- think about that new baby love um, and how much time people newly in love spend gazing at one another, li- listening to one another's stories And that's really kind of what I hope we will all learn to do before it's too late. There's nothing about studying the persimmon's bark that will in any way address climate change or biodiversity loss, but it is the first step to falling in love. And that, I hope, is the first step to working to save what we love. And just by bringing us back to attention with those opening lines, with the line of stop and look at the tangled rootlets of the poison ivy vine climbing the locust tree, just all of a sudden this wide expanse of worry comes down to what do you love? What do you pay attention to? It's just beautiful. Beauty is a big part of it. I think, you know, it's easy to believe that the beautiful things are only the pretty things. 
but mm. or the things that cause us no trouble. But they, the beauty is in the complexity. It's not really in the prettiness. So, yes, the tangled rootlets of the poison ivy vine are pretty in a way, but we know what they're feeding, and so we keep our distance. But I think recognizing and embracing that complexity, the interconnection of so many things, poison ivy flowers and produces berries, And those flowers feed the bees and the butterflies and the berries feed the birds. And so it is beautiful. Um, And if we are paying attention, we can see its beauty. It reminds me of um, there's this fantastic interview with John O'Donohue, who, of course, passed over a decade ago with Krista Tippett. And it's called On Beauty. And he says the exact same thing you just did in a different way, obviously, but I think about that all the time of what we call glamorous or pretty versus what we call beautiful if we pay attention. Yes. Well, there's, so, oh gosh, there's so many beautiful, beautiful lessons in the book, but one of the ones that really strikes is when you write about unkempt gardens and lawns, about the hidden world below the blanket of what you call the worth of a messy garden. What do you mean by that? And how can we how can we take from that? Well, I think that, you know, gardens have have sort of traditionally served two purposes for human beings. And one is to provide food and the other is to provide beauty. And somehow in those two pursuits, we've lost sight of what flowers are really for. Flowers are food for insects and insects are food for everybody else. So uh, I think the, the, the beauty of a messy garden is that it works in concert with nature. So at this time of year, I used to tidy up my garden. I used to pull out the dead annuals and, and trim the, the dead wood off the perennials and put, tuck the flowers in with a nice thick layer of mulch probably hardwood mulch from some tree that gave its life for no good reason, but my own ignorance. And, but the truth is that when you leave the hollow stems of the perennials, you're leaving a place for overwintering wintering insects to, to say, stay safely through the cold weather, little hiding places. When you leave the leaves where they fall, you're creating the natural kind of food for your trees, the tree, the, the food trees were evolved to eat, but you're also providing a nice little blanket for the insects. So they're there when, when the bir- baby birds hatch in the spring and the parents, there are, there are really, I can't think of any baby birds that are vegetarians. Even even songbirds don't eat insects as adults feed insects to their babies because growing bodies need protein. So it's all connected. And and the great thing about the messy garden, Ron, is that it's easy to maintain. It doesn't cost anything and it doesn't take any time. You know, I, I try to keep the weeds out of there because I would like very much not to um not to provide a nice layer of leaves for my creeping Charlie. But other than that, I, I want the garden to be what the garden was designed by God to be, which is habitat. 
Yes, the time saver factor. I was going to say, but then I thought I better not. Beautifully (laughs) said. How often does this happen in our lives that the right (laughs) thing to do is also the easy thing to do? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I love garden as habitat. I I love that because we think about gardens as ornamental or something pretty to look at or something to surround our house with, but often forget that garden is habitat. It's a really good reminder. Well, I do want to say that that I that I I do. I do attempt <laughs> to make the garden somewhat pleasing to my neighbor's eyes as well. I don't want to be a bad neighbor. I don't want it to look like um, rats live on the property because they actually don't. But um, but rat snakes do, and yes. and so do uh, chipmunks and moles and all, all kinds of other wonderful creatures. But the flowers are pretty, even if they have the word weed in their name. Right now, ironweed is blooming and it is this gorgeous deep purple and so many of the 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 flowers that are in my garden have the word weed as part of them um and yet they are every bit as beautiful as the flowers that that aren't native to our landscape and can't because they aren't native feed our native insects and and wildlife um but they are still just as beautiful, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now you mentioned the love letter to nature, and Anne Patchett calls this book a howling love letter to the world. I love that. I want to talk ab- about your writing process because I know you have these keen powers of observation that are, you know, smack the minute you open the book, you see those keen powers of observation of the natural world. How do you tie these observations with your writing process? Do you decide ahead of time which, which essays to include or focus on? Does the natural world lead you to them? Tell us about combining those two qualities. Really, it's the the world comes first. Uh, and nice. I, I guess I have to admit that a lot of this, what you're very kindly calling keen powers of observation, is also for me a keen a keen power of procrastination. So I love that. <laughs> a lot of what I'm doing when I'm looking out the window or water, wandering around the yard is I'm putting off something I would prefer to do much less. And then in that process of observation, an idea might come to me um, that would possibly make an essay either right then or down the road. But I take notes to myself in a lot of different forms all the time. I have a little reporter's notebook in every bag. I have my phone with me. Even though I hate the phone, I love the camera in the phone and the fact that it fits in my pocket. And I take pictures to remember. And I use the notes app I use the voice memos app to if I'm thinking of something when I can't get to a pen and paper very quickly. Um, I and, and the great thing about those little notes I leave to myself in every possible form is that I very often forget that I've taken those notes and then I find them later. And it's like a little treasure hunt that yielded an essay I didn't even remember that I was planning. And so in that case, in those cases, often time has elapsed and more thoughts have piled on top of thoughts. And the the great thing about being um, an essayist as opposed to trying to write 
novels is that you don't have to hold that much in your mind at one time. You know, it's, it's these, they, these essays in the comfort of crows, they go anywhere from the, you know, a paragraph to 2000 words, but nothing like a 75,000 word novel. I'm not trying to carry too much from one piece to the next. It seems like those little notes you leave yourself and I do the same thing. I always look at them as gifts from past Patty. Like, thank you, Patty, for writing that down for future Patty. I appreciate How it. How kind of you to have known that I was going to be having trouble coming up with the subject this week. Exactly. And there it goes. Okay, so also in the book, of course, it's full of beauty too, but there's also a call that you give to take care of our natural world and, and not just observing it. For instance, making sure that there is water in a bird bath during a freeze, bird seed in the bird feeder as well. You tell the story of trying to capture a sick fox. Tell us about this need to take care of our natural world and not just observe it. Well, I do think that people have an inherent need to do that. If you spend any amount of time at all on social media, you'll see how many people want to teach a squirrel to sit in their lap or, you know, who want to um, who are desperate to help a squ- baby squirrel that's fallen out of it, its nest or a baby bird that the cat has brought in. It's almost always a mistake to do any of those things yourself. It's much better to hand them over to licensed wildlife rehabilitators because they know what to do. They know what each species, even baby birds, vary so much in their needs from species to species. But I think that need is very strong in us um, as a species. We, We understand at a fundamental level, even if we don't really understand at a conscious level, that this is habitat for us too. And that's, I think, why people respond so powerfully to uh, to images of beautiful landscapes or magnificent animals doing animal things. Um, and it's, it's maybe not as easy to see that, that, that garter snake that frightens you is also a magnificent creature. It's maybe not quite so easy to see the magnificence in a mole, but we do have that inborn in us, I believe. Um, And we still have very strong vestiges of it in our bodies. So we know, for example, that turning soil releases microbes into the air that function in our brains the same way serotonin. It's a serotonin stimulator in the same way that an antidepressant is. And so it, you know, part of why I wrote this book is just this really strong feeling that people today are so separate from the natural world, even the natural world of nearby nature, that they don't understand how much pleasure and joy they are missing by driving straight into their garages instead of walking out to the mailbox to check the mail and then just poking around a little bit. We have somehow come to the idea that nature is something that should look like our living rooms. It should be tidy and predictable and comfortable in every way and at every minute. And in taking that approach, we miss so much, so many opportunities for joy. It's wonderful. And um, uh, 
just to share a little bit, I'm I'm from a very rural country upbringing, but now I live in the city, and it's quite a difference. And the book, and I think this will do this for other readers, will kind of take you back and make you reappreciate what you what you've known all this all this time, and how you really get what you're trying to say. I mean, the book is just full of amazing lessons. I worry so much about little children today who, and for many good reasons, parents are busy parent, you know, my mother didn't work. So I was free to uh, wander around the woods and the fields. And now it's much harder for parents and it's much harder for, um, for, to, to keep kids entertained. But I see so many children everywhere on a screen at, at the tiniest, youngest ages, or I see parents pushing strollers with, little tiny babies gazing up at them while they talk on their phones with their earbuds in and not. And I just, I hope that we aren't entirely losing a generation um, who would be able to return to those memories that you have, Ron, you know, the, the of playing it barefoot in the dirt. Yes, 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 yes. And when you did write about turning over the soil and the smells and the serotonin, it's like, I have so many memories of doing that. So it was like, it, it's one of the gifts of the book. Well, little kids are just very, very interested in in creepy crawly things. <laughs> and I and I remember my oldest son, he he got a note home from his second grade teacher that he was being too daydreamy in class and he, he was he wasn't able to focus. And I and I thought, this is a child who when he was still in diapers could sit and watch an anthill for 30 minutes or an hour, mm-hmm. you know, of course he can focus. You're just boring him. You're you know? boring him. That's what I was just going <laughs> to say. It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. You know, I just sent out a newsletter for my, for my subscribers and talked about what a chaotic time this has been for me. I'm renovating a house. I've been on book tour. I'm trying to write a book. And I listed the things that have kept me grounded. And I listed your book. Because it just reminds me to get outside, right? Um, Because we're renovating, I'm living in an apartment and I don't walk out the front door to my yard. And I put down your book and just went for a really long walk at the river park. So it's, it's a reminder and it's also a grounding. It's more than lessons. It's a grounding into ourselves. I do think it's important maybe to point out that I, I'm aware that not everybody has a backyard, and I right. do, I do, I do talk about how nearby nature is near wherever you are because I don't want people to have the idea that this is just for suburban readers. Because you can put, I got a picture. Um, t- somebody tagged me on a photo on Instagram last fall of a of a potted flower on a balcony like nine floors up in Atlanta and there was a monarch butterfly sitting on the flower. I mean you could put that's the kind of food you want to give your wild neighbors is the flowers they need, the plants that bear nuts and berries and fruits, um, the kinds of plants that uh, caterpillars love. They're all there they're all kinds of uh butterflies and moths that have very specific plant needs, but then there are other, uh, then there are some plants that feed 
many, 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 many dozens and dozens of different kinds of caterpillars. So those specialist plants and those universal plants are are the kind of food that we need. And you can do that wherever you live. And in, in, and this is the wonderful thing about the natural world. I drive an electric car, so I have to rent a car if I have to go out of town for any length of time. And because in Tennessee, we don't have charging stations at convenient locations on the interstate just yet. Although I think they're working on it, but there's a, there's a little, there's a little, I guess uh, a kind of an abandoned parking lot next to the rental agency, I car rental agency I use and where the pavement has crumbled. There are great stands of snake root right now. And snake root is a, this beautiful white flower that um, thousand that was covered with thousands of little tiny bees. It It's everywhere. If we're just looking for it. Yes. And you remind me to look for it. I want to talk about the praise songs. They're almost like an interstitial, you know, tying together each of the essays. I believe there are about 14 of them. I tried to count them. But the one that made me cry out in the middle of reading, me too, is the praise song for a larger home about kids leaving the house. And I want to read the last line for our listeners. It says, it's called praise song for a larger home. They are building their own lives now. And when they left home to return to them, I took myself to the woods. Because sometimes the only cure for homesickness is to enlarge the definition of home. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about these praise songs and where they came from. And in other words, what was the first one you wrote? And did you know that they would grow into this kind of interstitial tissue that binds all these essays together? I don't remember what the first one was. I, I I think I I was writing writing these things just as thoughts came to me with no particular plan. Those praise songs are are old. Some of them are are brand new, and some of them are older than the oldest essay, the very first essay I wrote mm-hmm. for the book. Because I don't know. Sometimes I write things. I don't know what I'm going to do with them later, Patty. It's just a, <laughs> it's just it like a call, but. But I, but I knew I was going to include them in this book because I think of The Comfort of Crows as kind of a companion volume, not a sequel, but a compa- companion to my first book, Late Migrations. migrations. Uh, because na- Late Migrations was a, a, a weaving together of my family of origin and the natural world. And this, is, this book is a weaving together of the family my husband and I made and the natural world. But I knew when I started writing The Comfort of Crows that I was going to be more deliberate in addressing climate change and biodiversity loss. And I didn't want the book to get too dark or too burdensome or heavy. Um, And and so the praise songs are, I didn't know how, I didn't know whether the main essays were going to be very dark. They're not. And I think some of them are a little dark, but most of them aren't. But the praise songs were there to kind of add more joy to the book. Mm. Just, um, But I was specifically looking to praise things that other people might not praise um, or that we might not think worthy of praise. So um, some of them are, uh, you know, the kind of thing you would definitely praise, like a song sparrow. 
the song of a song sparrow. Mm-hmm. Others are, there's one that's a, a praise song to, to uh, a picture <laughs> I saw of a coyote poop that had little mole hands sticking out of them because the, the, the hands were not digested by the coyote. And so it was a little, that's not maybe the most normal thing to praise. Um, but I wanted, I wanted as a, an act of attention for my own sake to, to, to look for the things that need to be praised in the world. I'm just basking in all this. This is so good. <laughs> so um, one of the things that um, I know people are listening and they're not seeing, but if for no other reason, go get the copy of this book to look at the cover. This cover is so beautiful, beautiful. And also interspersed throughout each essay, you have a, a, a painting, an illustration there. Can you talk about those and putting them in? They're just like, they're stunning and they really... They really make the points you're trying to make in, in a visual way. Yeah, I just recorded the uh, finished recording the audiobook last week, and I and I kept thinking, oh, but I don't really want anybody to get the audiobook because I want people to see the art. Oh, they the have art to. works. There, there. You're right. There's one. There's not one for every praise song, but there is one for each of the 52 essays that follow the seasons of the year. And my brother Billy Wrinkle. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry about that. He is um, a collage artist and he's only a year younger than I am. And he did the artwork for uh, late migrations, both the cover art and um, some, some internal artworks for the book itself. And I wanted him to do this one too, because I was thinking of this book from the very beginning as a devotional of sorts, the kind of, I was thinking about our grandmother who used to first thing in the morning, read the devotional entry for the day from her guideposts magazine. And, um, and the idea of the value of slowing down and contemplating and giving yourself the space not to be in a hurry. I thought the artworks would serve that purpose in a way that was very different from the purpose I was aiming for with the words that you could linger over a piece of art and it would, by definition, it would slow you down. You wouldn't be skimming. Um, and, and, and I think that this is part of why those beautiful old illuminated manuscripts from the medieval period are, are still so moving to us today it's it's a it's a marriage of words and image and of course my brother was going to do it <laughs> because he and i have been doing little projects together from childhood we used to make things for our parents it may be a i would write a poem and he would draw a picture to go with it or i would write um a story um and and we did that all the way through we went to college and graduate school together so we were doing these kinds of things all along and it, and it just so happens that Billy's aesthetic is very similar to mine. So he very often works with birds and flowers and grasses and stars and all the things I write about in The Comfort of Crows. So it was really fun. I didn't think of them and still don't think of them as illustrations. I think of them as as true artworks in the sense that it was not my job to 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 
tell Billy how to make those works of art. That was his job. They just, oh, they're stunning. They're just stunning. I mean, some of them you want to take out and frame. Yes. Hello. Like, I know, <laughs> yeah. I know you listening cannot see see what I'm holding up, but some are in color and some are in black and white, and they are beautiful works of art. In case you're wondering what to give as a gift next, the Comfort of Crows is is your is your answer out there. It's already on my list for several people. Yes. Well, I was telling the folks at our local bookstore, Parnassus Books, just think of it this way. It could be a gift that you don't even have to wrap because the cover's so pretty. That's you just so put true. a bow in there. It is already wrapped. It really is. I'm it sorry. is. I think because it I had no I have no responsibility for it, but that, that cover is, is that Billy came up with is beautiful. Mm-hmm. A red or green ribbon on there and you are set. <laughs> Margaret, you have a regular New York Times column that the minute I see your name pop up on my, you know, NewYorkTimes.com, boom, it's the first thing I read because I know I'm going to resonate with it. You write about the South, about the peculiarities of living in the South, about being a Southerner. You write about nature. You write about family. You write about gun control. You write about all the things we care about. So how do you decide which pieces go in the New York Times? Because they are very different. Then some of your essays, Ron noted how much he loved the pumpkin squirrel piece. <laughs> and I'm wondering how you decide what what feels more like an op-ed piece and what feels more like a an essay that goes inside one of your books. Well, sometimes they are the same thing. There, okay. there, there are several pieces in the new book that began their lives as as essays for the times, although I did revise them significantly. Yeah. Um there, when you're writing for <clears throat> when you're writing a book, you can trust a reader, I think, to go back and puzzle out something they don't really understand. So you don't have to spell out as much. There, there, there's a little more room for nuance. There's a little more room for complexity and for trust to just believe to give the reader credit for being able to make that little leap with you. It's not so um, true for newspaper readers. They, they, they'll tell you when you get on the New York Times website, this is a five-minute read. This is a four-minute read. They know how long people typically linger on a particular piece. And when you have someone's attention for five minutes, you do not want to take a chance on being misunderstood. So often I am writing about the same kinds of things, and sometimes even the very same thing, but I'm, I have to do it in a little bit different way to accommodate the different medium that the mediums that, and, and how people tend to approach reading in each of those circumstances. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump in about the pumpkin squirrel thing. Our neighbors think that we are like absolutely insane because every fall we have pumpkins on our front porch and steps and we leave them out because we know that the squirrels come along and they demolish them. They, and, but it must be for some greater good. And I have a video of, of them popping in and out and our neighbors just go like, please get rid of those. Like, no. It's, I think it's hilarious. They, they make a hole in a pumpkin and then they get down in the hole. And then if you walk by, you don't know there's anything living in the pumpkin. And then this pumpkin, this squirrel will spring out of the pumpkin, 
like it's like it's spring loaded and um, it's been cat, you know, it's been catapulted out into the world. and It's just hilarious. But but that's for a squirrel. Pumpkins are nature's food. And I was just reading that some people will put um, will put bleach on their pumpkins to try to dissuade the and it's so dangerous to do that. It's much safer if you don't want to share to put vinegar on there, but, but why not share, you know, it's like, that's what, that's what they're for. It's it's great entertainment. (laughs) And it's, um, it's free pumpkins because those squirrels are taking those pumpkin seeds and they're putting them all over the place. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they get mowed over and sometimes they grow in a place as ours did this year where they took up, a sunny spot where some cherry laurels had been wiped out in the hard freeze last winter. And, um, and I was delighted to have them there and the neighborhood children love to come in and inspect the pumpkins and watch the development as they went from green to orange and then from orange to food. And you're just tying this whole cycle together. I love it. So Margaret, even as you write with both heartache and hope, you lean into hope, I think. What is really making you hopeful right now? I do believe that this summer of unbearable heat and terrible fires and recurrent floods, I do believe that people now 100% understand what's happening. And I don't think they know that yet that they are not powerless to help do something about it. But that's the first step is acknowledging that this is, this is not something that's happening to the polar bears. This is something that's happening to all of us. And we are going to absolutely have to work together to, to do something about it. And, and there are small steps we can take in our own lives. And, but that, but just the awareness of what's happening will help people put pressure on their elected officials to recognize that this is not a political issue. Um, Addressing and accommodating the changes that are happening to us right now, it should be our most urgent need. And that's going to take all of us. It can't be a political position. It has to be a human position. And I, I feel like we're getting there. That's a really good thing to be hopeful about. Eyes opening, scales falling off. That's a thing to be helpful for. Our leaders haven't gotten there yet, but we have learned recently uh, on a number of different issues that our leaders, if they think it's going to cost them votes, will do what we want them to do. So we have to make them aware we care. Then maybe they will. Exactly. Also, do do you have another project that you're working on now that we can look forward to? I'm... I'm in the very early stages of thinking about what might be the next one, but this is my third book in four years and I don't want to be in a hurry. I I was 57 years old when my first book came out. So there was a sense, I had this really strong sense that I, I didn't have any time to waste and I still do feel that, but I also feel like it, it's time to slow down a little bit and give myself time to, to really, think through. I don't think it will be another collection of essays. I think 
it might be a children's book. Um, Billy, Michael, my brother who did the art for late migrations and the comfort of crows, he would really very much like to, he has a new grandson and he would very much like to do a picture book for children. And I have an idea for that. And, and I maybe might try to figure out if it's possible to write a longer narrative book of nonfiction or maybe a novel. I don't know. Whatever it is, we'll take it. <laughs> I was going to say, whatever it is, we'll be, we'll be here for it. Margaret, this has been such a heartwarming and wise Loved and it. deeply thoughtful conversation. Thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts and your essays with us. Can you share with our listeners where they can connect with you online and even see you out on tour for this book? I I do have a little tour graphic to put up, but I haven't put it up yet. Um, the so, but I I'm most active on Instagram. I I do still have a Twitter account and a Facebook account. Um, I've started a Threads account. I'm not on TikTok. I will never be on TikTok. But I I'm I like to put post pictures of my yard on Instagram. I follow a lot of wildlife rescue organizations on Instagram and I learn a lot from them. So yeah. And I will be on a pretty extensive book tour, mainly in the South and the Midwest, but I, but I have that, those details haven't been posted yet, but coming up, I'll be in Atlanta. I'll be in uh, Athens, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Nashville, Mississippi, couple places in Nashville, couple places in Alabama, St. Louis, Minnesota. I can't remember all the places, but it'll be fun to see folks. I hope y'all come out. Yes. Margaret, thank you so much. This has been enlightening, thoughtful, and just so meaningful. Well, I can't thank you enough for the care with which you've both read this book and the love in your questions. uh, It makes me feel very welcome and maybe a little less terrified about sending this book out into the world alone. Uh, It's going to, it's going to sail out there in the world. People are going to love it. Thank you. There is so much to be thankful for. And our guest today offers a fantastic reminder of the beauty of the world around us. Do yourself a favor and be sure to grab a copy of the comfort of crows from our friends in fiction bookshop.org store. You can save a little, help a little, and savor this stunning work, which makes a beautiful gift. As Patty said, just put a red or a green ribbon around it, and the cover's wrapping enough. Thank you so much for joining us today, and please be sure to share us with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.